Oh, it's a crazy one, and we have disagreements. I'm unhappy. It's okay. <laughs> Carrie likes the Netflix series more. I like the movie more, and we both have shaky pillars to stand on when it comes to those opinions. You just have never been more wrong about anything in your long life. It feels like a spoof, Carrie. No. I feel like they're not taking it seriously. The series feels like a spoof? <laughs> no, yeah. Did we watch the same movie? I'm sorry. I experienced the movie first and then the books, but my true oh, love is the books. Okay, so you're a dirty millennial originalist. What did you want to do? Cover the series? Yeah! Cover the series for this? If you, not the series for this, but if you're gonna make a movie, finish the GD thing! This is a Nickelodeon movie and this is why we're doing it. Okay, this is, uh, hopefully this is all the yelling we do. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. Welcome back to Kicking and Stream, where the orphans are unlucky and the adults are unhelpful. I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And this week we are covering, to my immense chagrin, the 2004 family adventure comedy. I love that you put family in there. Because it is a family movie. Go on. Are we going (laughs) to argue this whole time? Yes, we are. (laughs) The family adventure comedy, a series of unfortunate events. Actually, let me snickets a series of unfortunate events. Oh, so we are going (laughs) to argue this whole time. I love the look that Carrie gets where (laughs) she forgets who I am. (laughs) And I'm, she's coming across the table. (laughs) Yeah. God. Well, what can I say? I threaten you with violence all the time and <laughs> <laughs> never actually follow through on it. Before we get started, don't forget, go follow us on Twitter at Kick and Stream. K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. You can write the show at Kicking and Streaming Podcast at gmail.com. That's with an and, not an ampersand. Please don't forget, folks, practice the three R's. Rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, retweet, folks. We want everyone to come and join this little Nick November watch party. And if you haven't checked out the Patreon yet, guys... For just $5, if you sign up right now, you're going to get like 30 plus episodes of content. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's a great value right now to sign up for 5 bucks and get all of our Patreon content. We covered John Adams. We covered The Haunting of Hill House. You're getting our bonus episodes, our behind the scenes, shooting the shit with Carrie and Ross. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. We got another one of those coming up later this month, don't we? We do. Oh, it's going to be great. I'm very excited. Also, guys, if you want access to our full catalog of episodes, you just go on over to our Podbean page. It's all there, guys. Mm-hmm. You can also find the custom RSS link and play in any player of your choosing. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. We've had some more engagement of recent, haven't we? Yes, we have. With the downloaders. We love it. We'd love to see you guys sharing the show and getting us some more listeners. Thank you very much. And to all 50 people who listen to our content, (laughs) we want to thank you for your patronage. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here with us. What are we, year three? Yeah. (laughs) About to be year four? This is the story of the three Baudelaire children. Violet loved to invent. Her brother, Klaus, loved to read. And their little sister, Sunny, she loved to bite. My name is Lemony Snicket, and it is my duty to tell you their tale. No one knows the precise cause of the Baudelaire fire. And just like that, the Baudelaire children became the Baudelaire orphans. 
I'm taking you to live with your closest relative. And he's an actor by trade. Isn't that exciting? Hello, hello, hello. I am your beloved Count Olaf. My dear Violet. All I ask is that you do each and everything that pops into my head while I enjoy the enormous fortune your parents left behind. Oh. I'm sorry, I don't speak monkey. Violet, what are we doing here? Maybe he just doesn't make a very good first impression. You're invited to discover this way to the reptile room. Oh. A world built by imagination and strung together by a series of unfortunate events. Paramount Pictures and DreamWorks Pictures present <laughs> Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey, and Jim Carrey. Then the unthinkable happened. <laughs> Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, directed by Brad Silberling. Now that we're family, I can be the ultimate dad. We're very concerned. This movie was obviously based off of Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, which is a 13-novel saga about the Baudelaire orphans and the unfortunate events surrounding their young lives. More Wh like a year in their lives. For real. Can you believe all that takes place in a year? I can't, actually. I, I, I really can't. Guys, books number 1 to 13, it's a thrill. It is act They are actually the only books I like to sit down and read anymore. Well, of course, David McCullough's John Adams. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I, I, I just, I, I'm an audiobook guy. Like, mm -hmm. I don't read the Harry Potters anymore. I, I love having them read to me. Thank you, Jim Dale. <laughs> Fuck yeah. you, Joanne. Um, <laughs> yeah, that too. That too. And, but guys, I just, I just love everything about this series. From the bad beginning to the reptile room to the wide window, which are the first three novels in the series. And that is what the Nickelodeon film is based off of, is those first three books. And... Um, they did have intentions to make more, apparently, but the box office did so poorly with this movie. Well, the movie did so poorly with the box office, but uh, they didn't make any more, which is probably good because Carrie Ann's got a lot of complaints about uh, how this uh, film does not buy into the novels as faithfully as they could. Here's the thing, guys. I have strong feelings the way I do because in the same way that Harry Potter shaped you, these books shaped me. Everything from my love of writing to my vocabulary to my expectations for the real world, these books shaped me. And so, of course, I'm going to have a lot of strong feelings about it. There are mistakes, like canonical huge plot holes that are made that if they had made more of these movies, they would have written themselves into a corner. So guys, Lemony Snicket is, of course, the pen name of the series author, Daniel Handler. I love him. I'd love to have dinner with him. I would, yeah, I'd love to talk to him too. Like, Lemony Snicket is a character that he created in-universe for the series of Unfortunate Events. Lemony Snicket is the supposed author of all of the novels in the series. And just, the, and just having this book in my hand right now, I'm holding the bad beginning 
right now. And it just, I, I love the styles of these books. I, I love how there are so few words printed on every page. Like, it makes you feel so successful as a reader. Yeah, that's the thing, guys. If you haven't read these since you were a kid or if you haven't read them at all... Try and read them. They're very quick reads. And I think I think the thing, I think the core memory these books bring back for me is book fair. Yeah, the book fair. The book fair. The scholastic book fair. The scholastic book fair. If you're a Midwestern kid, United States kid, whatever, you probably had the book fair. For many of us, that was like the last time we were all happy. Indeed. Like, I, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, yeah, it is a core memory for me. Standing in the school library, taking The Bad Beginning, the first volume in the series, off the shelf for the first time, turning it over and reading the back cover. Would you like to read it for our listeners right now? At the back cover of every installment, it has um, a Dear Reader note written on the back by the author. And the book, the one on the back of The Bad Beginning reads, I'm sorry to say that the book you are holding in your hands is extremely unpleasant. It tells an unhappy tale about three very unlucky children. Even though they are charming and clever, the Baudelaire siblings lead lives filled with misery and woe. From the very first page of this book, when the children are at the beach and receive terrible news, continuing on through the entire story, disaster lurks at their heels. One might say they are magnets for misfortune. In this short book alone, the three youngsters encounter a greedy and repulsive villain, itching clothing, a disastrous fire, and a plot to steal their fortune, and cold porridge for breakfast. <laughs> it is my sad duty to write down these unpleasant tales, but there is nothing stopping you from putting this book down at once and reading something more happy, if you would prefer that sort of thing. With all due respect, Lemony Snicket. Don't read this book. <laughs> that's the first thing that's going to make the children want to read it is saying, don't read this book. And guys, I just, I think that what captures it for me best is Brett Helquist. He is the illustrator on the novels. Oh, God and bless Brett Helquist. There's always these great portraits on the cover of every book. And they always incorporate three main illustrations. One at the beginning of the story, one somewhere in the middle and or towards the end, and one at the very end. And I would just, I honestly would love to have a collage on my wall. Yeah. Of all of the Brett Helquist illustrations from this book. And not only are there 13 novels chronicling the misfortunes of the Baudelaire orphans, but there's also companion material. There's Lemony Snicket, the unauthorized biography. There's the Beatrice Letters. If you're a fan of the novels, you'll understand why that's lovely. And there's also, um, there's also All the Wrong Questions. That's a chronicle of Lemony Snicket's quote, adolescence being recruited for VFD. Mm -hmm. Basically throughout the journey in the novel, you realize their parents were members of a secret society which had very deep ties into the control of the world. <laughs> kind of like the Illuminati. Yeah, their parents were in the Illuminati, guys. <laughs> or at least this universe's uh, uh, Illuminati. And guys, the, th the other thing I love about this series is that the, the setting, we are in this anachronistic, timeless expanse. A floating timeline. A floating timeline. Everything is very stylized in this 1930s-esque feel, but, you know, they have computers and fiber optic cables and... It's kind of like Archer, in a way. Yeah. Like, it looks like it takes place in the 60s, but could easily take place in the 90s. And uh, also, at the end of every book, there is also a letter to his editor. Which is fabulous! That he's written about the contents of the next installment. The extra textural supplemental things that go on in these books is just wild. There's this whole 
universe that can be extrapolated if you are willing to read closely enough. What all of this does for the reader, we're not only rooting for our protagonists here, but we start to root for the author. Yeah. Because he is making it clear to you that someone is out there trying to stop him from writing these books. Uh Uh-huh. Someone is trying to stop him from uncovering everything that happened to the Baudelaire orphans because the world doesn't want you to know. Yeah. The world doesn't want you to know how badly these children were failed. Guys, I'm always going to recommend the novels more to you over anything else. Um, This movie is just a great way for me to talk about the books, really. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's the thing. I'm an adult, and so I won't say I was bullied into this subject. Yeah. Because I'm an adult, but I was bullied into this. (laughs) This movie is based off of the first three novels, right? The Bad Beginning, The Reptile Room, and The Wide Window. And (laughs) it all rounds back at the end. They've twisted the plot. I love that the ending of this film is actually just the ending of the first book. A little bit. They just moved some bits and pieces around and added some things. We'll get there. (laughs) Uh, Folks, you might have guessed it, but we've got names. Oh, boy, do we ever. Yeah, Carrie's got thoughts. (laughs) Carrie's got thoughts, and that's okay. Playing our main villain here today, Count Olaf, we have Jim Carrey. Yes. (laughs) He was with us in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Indeed. Tell me about Count Olaf. Count Olaf is a villainous stage actor. (laughs) He is the, as I like to describe him, the smartest idiot in all of literature. And you are very correct about that. Or maybe the dumbest smart person. You are the dumbest smart person (laughs) a little Will Smith for my robot there Um, not only does he portray Count Olaf in this movie but he portrays Stefano and Captain Julio Sham yeah because they're his disguises (laughs) they are his disguises Count Olaf is an actor and loves his disguises and first of all Count Olaf had the Baudelaire parents murdered yeah and then is just constantly trying to get their fortune it is his life's dream (laughs) to have enough money to fuck off and do whatever he wants to anyone wherever he wants oh yeah Uh, he's a filthy scoundrel Mm -hmm. Count Olaf is he has no class (laughs) he thinks he has nuance I know. But like Carrie Ann's chief criticism is Jim Carrey, you know, he just made him too much of an idiot, right? Like Like, he's he's a clown to you in this. He's a clown to me. And it's like he hit opposite ends of the spectrum without capturing the nuance. Because, yeah, he is a clown. But I also feel like Jim Carrey plays him smarter than he actually is. And that's to say nothing of the energy of the performance, which I'll comment on later, Mm -hmm. but it's just, it's not hitting the middle of the road the way it should in this incredibly sophisticated yet funny black comedy book series. And I will admit, you're not alone in these opinions. Yeah. You are not alone in these opinions. Playing the eldest Baudelaire orphan, Violet Baudelaire, we have Emily Browning. Oh, I love Emily Browning, actually. Uh, The Echo of Thunder, High Flyers, Something in the Air, Blue Heelers. She's in that really freaky movie. What's it called? It's a horror movie. The Invited? The Invited, yes. With, like, Elizabeth What's-Her-Bucket from The Hunger Games and... um, Elizabeth Banks. Yes, Elizabeth Banks. Yes, you're right. (laughs) And Pitch Perfect. I love love The Invited, but it's only good for one watch. (laughs) After that, it stinks. 
Uh, Violet Baudelaire is a 14-year-old genius. Um, mm-hmm. They're all kind of geniuses, the Baudelaire orphans. Uh, Violet, who is 14 years old, is a little inventor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You put her in a certain environment, she'll build something. She's the MacGyver! You could put her in a white, vast expanse of nothingness, and she'd build a contraption. <laughs> yeah, she sure would. Oh, my goodness. You can always tell when Violet's thinking, because she loves to tie her hair up in a ribbon whenever it's time to get to work. And if you know me personally, you know that I often have my hair up, and that this is the real reason why because when I was a kid I believed that if I had my hair up out of my face that I could think better and it just kind of became a life pattern fan theory what's that Violet Baudelaire's Lemony Snicket's daughter anyway um (laughs) okay alright we obviously just need a podcast about the books like I don't like now that we're all now that we're already doing this we honestly just need a podcast about the books Ross don't tempt me Uh, I'm already on a literary adventure with this series now you want to instead of doing a long form series next year you want to do long form books I mean (laughs) it could happen do you know how long that would take and how much how how in an (laughs) asylum you would be Uh, yeah Guys, playing Klaus Baudelaire today, the middle Baudelaire orphan, we have Liam Aiken. He was almost with us before one time. When <laughs> he we, was almost with us. When we did, when we were going to do Stepmom and decided it was just too fucking sad. He is the boy in Stepmom. Yeah, he's the little, uh, I don't know what his name is. <laughs> Uh, he was also I love the only other thing that I know for sure that he's in besides this and stepmom. He's in an episode of Mad Men. Yeah, where Sally goes to Miss Porter's. She goes away to private school, and Glenn oh, Glenn yeah. Bishop comes to visit, and his buddy Rolo is Liam Aiken. Is Liam Aiken? Yeah. Talk to me about Klaus. Klaus is my favorite character in a series from Fortunate Events. Uh, Klaus is a little bookworm. He's twelve years old, and the Baudelaire orphans had the most magnificent library around in their mansion, and he had read every book in that library and everything that Klaus reads he fucking remembers he's got like a photographic memory I also love that because these orphans are faced with so many perilous situations throughout the series, they all have their own little talents that help them survive. Like Violet's is inventing. Inventing. And of course, Sonny is biting, which we will get there. But um, Klaus's, of course, is his photographic memory, his intellect, and his research abilities because he is a reader at heart. And consequently, there is a library every fucking where they go. No, that's a major tenet of the series. Carrie, is there's a fucking library at the top of the mountain in a cave. Yeah, no, it makes like, no sense. Like, what? But it's because one of the major tenets of this series is that knowledge is valuable and the villains in this series disregard knowledge and learning as useless. Like, People who read are stupid to the villains in this series. Yes, no, intellect is the weapon mm-hmm. in, in this series. and um, I love it. Why do you think it shaped me as a human? And ignorance is the enemy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lemony Snicket is Toby Ziegler to Josiah Bartlett. (laughs) You are not plain spoken. Do not act like it. You know? Exactly. And, of course, guys, playing our third Baudelaire orphan, Sonny Baudelaire, we have Kara and Shelby Hoffman. Love it. They are obviously little two-year-olds that are alternating the role of Sonny. Tell me about Sonny. Sonny Baudelaire is uh, an infant at the beginning of the series and is at that age, as Lemony Snicket says, where one speaks in a series of unintelligible shrieks. (laughs) The kids can, uh, the, the two older siblings can understand everything she says. Absolutely. And can convey it to anyone who asks. How very Rugrats. Yes, it's, it is very Rugrats. 
Oh my god, hey, call back. We yeah, I know. <laughs> last week. Um, Sunny is a capable biter. <laughs> yes, she sure is. She has three teeth. <laughs> very sharp teeth. Three very or three or four very sharp teeth. <laughs> and her her gift isn't put to better use until the latter half of the series. I'll say. But <laughs> she mostly has to, you know, just survive yeah. through the first five or six. But Sunny's talent actually comes to, you know, she becomes a chef. Yeah. Like she she realizes she's good at cooking. Yeah. At the end. Of course. Because that's all their talents. <laughs> is invention, reading, and cooking. Of course. Which I mean, which really all you need for life, right? Like yeah. <laughs> you have to be inventive and resourceful, you have to know your shit, and you have to be able to feed yourself, which is these three orphans' talents. As the voice of the narrator, who is Lemony Snicket, mm-hmm. voicing Lemony Snicket is Jude Law. Please welcome him back to Kicking and Streaming. He was with us when we did The Holiday. And he's not just voicing him either. I shouldn't say that. We definitely see him. Yeah, we do. Like, he's supposed to be the silhouetted character that's popping in every so often. The mysterious Lemony Snicket. Yeah, the uh, the the private eye feel typing his earnest children's stories in a clock tower. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh my goodness. We've got um as Mr. Arthur Poe straight to jail. <laughs> as Mr. Arthur Poe, who is a, a banker at Mulchuary Money Management and in charge of the Baudelaire Orphans Affairs, we have Timothy Spall. Not Wormtail. I think this is his is this his first time here? I think it is. I think it might be his first kicking and streaming appearance. Guys, I love Timothy Spall. He's one of my favorite British character actors. Mm-hmm. He is, of course, famously Peter Pettigrew in the Harry Potter saga. We love him as the Beatle in Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber. Fleet Street. The Demon Bopper of Fleet Street. Uh, the, oh, I'm sorry. He has been with us. He was Winston Churchill in the King's Speech. I forget about that it, every single time. It's okay. Guys, you can't hold... He was also with us when we did Chicken Run, so he's actually... This is his third time here. <laughs> this is his third time here. Oh, my God. Guys, you got you can't hold us to that. Like, listeners, you really cannot hold us to that. We do not have time to t- look back and see how many times people have been here anymore. He is a Tim Burton silhouette, if there ever was one. Absolutely. As Dr. Montgomery Montgomery, Uncle Monty from the Reptile Room, we have Billy Connolly. Please welcome him back to Kicking and Streaming. Sir Billy Connolly, excuse you very much. Put some respect on his name. (laughs) Absolutely. Sir Billy Connolly. Guys, Muppet Treasure Island. (laughs) Pocahontas. (laughs) Are you glad I said Muppet Treasure Island first, Gary? He's Billy Bones! Yeah. <laughs> Guys, he's speckled throughout your voice work lexicon. Because uh, he's got that great Scottish brogue. He's got that great Scottish brogue, man. Like, I, I love it so much. He's done so many different things, and I don't have time to list them all. He was also King Fergus and Brave. Mm-hmm. I'll mention that as well. Fergus. Guys, Please welcome her back to Kicking and Streaming. She's been with us multiple times, quite possibly the greatest actress of our time. I'm going to call her Dame Meryl Streep. Um, Dame? She's not a dame, but can you believe that she's not been made one yet? She's an American. So is uh, Steven Spielberg. But he's been knighted by the queen? Yeah, and he is Sir Steven Spielberg. Okay. All right. I didn't know that was a thing. We've got Catherine O'Hara playing Justice Strauss. Please welcome her back. She was with us, of course, when we did the Home Alones. Our favorite Halloween mom. Yeah, she's also, yeah, she's she was also with us when we did A Nightmare Before Christmas. Jamie Harris is here playing the hook-handed man. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Rise of the Planet of the Apes. You go, Jamie. Uh, Cedric the Entertainer is here for some fucking reason. <laughs> He's a constable. Uh, we got Luis Guzman playing the bald-headed man. You'll know him from things like Magnolia, Boogie Nights. Community. Uh, Carlito's Way. <laughs> 
Oh no, move on to the two white-faced women. Playing the two white-faced women, Jane Addams and Jennifer Coolidge. Oh, you look real poor. <laughs> Makes me want your fortune real bad. Jennifer Coolidge is, of course, Stifler's mom from American Pie. <laughs> She's in Legally Blonde. <laughs> I'm taking the dog. <laughs> Dumbass. <laughs> And White Lotus. Most people are enjoying her at White Lotus. Yeah, people are hair on fire excited about her and White Lotus right now. She went in awards. Like, go, you go, Jennifer Coolidge. You go. A couple of uh, honorable mentions here. We've got um, Dustin Hoffman. For some GD reason. He is always appearing in movies for some GD reason. He like It's like he was walking by set and they gave him a costume. That's literally how it happened in The Holiday. He's playing a critic attending The Marvelous Marriage. We've got Jane Lynch playing a realtor. <laughs> that scares the shit out of Meryl Streep or rather Aunt Josephine I did not say who Meryl Streep played she plays Aunt Josephine guys Josephine Aunt Whistle we've got uh, Gilbert Gottfried playing the Affleck duck playing his contracted corporate sponsored mascot <laughs> in Nickelodeon's Lemony Snicket's un- series of unfortunate events yeah and uh, Daniel Handler himself makes a cameo as a photographer oh Mm-hmm. That's nice that they put him in the movie. Yeah, it is nice. Guys, we absolutely must start talking about the content. Oh, yeah. A couple of housekeeping things before we begin. Number one, this movie, like we said, covers three out of 13 books. No, we don't have any answers at the end of this friggin' film, okay? No, 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 no. no. Number two, this universe is absurd and full of things that defy explanation, partly because the Baudelaire's have a chronic bad luck streak and because the adults are pathologically unhelpful. Indeed. And number three, Mr. Snicket would be very upset with me if I did not remind you that this story is very dismal and you'd be much better off hugging a loved one or petting a dog or vice versa. Yeah, I know. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So without further ado, we give you a series of unfortunate events. Woodwind in the beginning <laughs> with, the, with the Nickelodeon planets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then transitions into this stop motion opener from hell. Oh, the Rankin and Bass of it all. It's called The Littlest Elf. <laughs> singing a tune. I just want to punch the lights out in the television. <laughs> no, do you remember seeing this in the theater? Oh yeah, going to see this in the theater for the first time, we were like, what? Like, are we in the wrong theater? Yeah, are we in the wrong theater? And like all of a sudden, just record scratch. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that this is not the movie you will be watching. The movie you are about to see is extremely unpleasant. If you wish to see a film about a happy little elf, I'm sure there is still plenty of seating in theater number two. However, if you like stories about clever and reasonably attractive orphans, suspicious fires, carnivorous leeches, Italian food, and secret organizations, then stay. 
Okay, I'm sold. Let, 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 let's do this. No, Jude Law as the voice of Lemony Snicket has got no business sounding this attractive. I mean, it's Jude Law in 2004. That was like peak sexy Jude Law. No, like, that's the thing. It's one thing to look attractive. It's a whole nother bit to sound attractive, right? Yeah. And I honestly, I do love him as our narrator today. I love that they've placed him in this clock tower throughout the whole movie. And mm-hmm. it's, he's like, he's, he's like you. Again, he's like you. He's writing his little stories. <laughs> He's writing his crime stories and he's writing about the Baudelaire orphans and we are constantly seeing like he's got photographs pinned up everywhere of places they've been or of them mm-hmm. from far off. And I love how we always get these transitions from his photographs into the movie. Violet Baudelaire, the eldest, was one of the finest 14-year-old inventors in the world. Anyone who knew Violet well could tell she was inventing something when her long hair was tied up in a ribbon. In a world of abandoned items and discarded materials, Violet knew there was always something. Like the little contraptions we just see all throughout their house that she's built, Mm -hmm. like the little apparatus for alerting you when the mail comes, Mm -hmm. or like the little fan she's made out of a bottle. And in my opinion, they overstyled Violet for this film. Like when you look at the illustrations versus what Emily Browning is wearing in the film, not only did Emily Browning say her costumes were really uncomfortable, but like they've just leaned way too much into the Tim Burton aesthetic with her. Or like, it's like, it's like burgeoning emo. It was like the birth of emo. Yeah. was Violet <laughs> Baudelaire. And like, she's like this, It's the, she's got these steampunk elements to her appearance <laughs> yeah. that don't translate to the other children. I also do not like that Klaus is the same height as her. Oh no, th- this poor kid, Liam Aiken, grew four inches over the course of production. <laughs> From casting to production starting. <laughs> they were like, what the fuck? <laughs> you were shorter. You could track where they are in production based on how much taller he is than Emily Browning. Klaus Baudelaire, the middle child, loved books. Or rather, the things he learned from books. The Baudelaire parents had an enormous library in their mansion, a room filled with thousands of books on nearly every subject. You know why I've got a problem with the way Klaus is styled, right? Yeah, because he doesn't look like Klaus from the books and he doesn't wear glasses. No, the, it's really just the glasses. The glasses are integral. I always I always love every illustration of Klaus. He looks like he's just eaten something that's given him an allergic reaction. Those <laughs> cheeks. Those cheeks. And, like, again, he is near blind without his glasses. And the glasses, if they had made more of these movies... If they had just gotten to book for The Miserable Mill, we would have seen how integral the glasses are. It's a huge plot point in that book. I know, I and know. it's just the first sign to me that they were not looking ahead with this production. Sunny, the youngest, had a different interest. She liked to bite things and had four sharp teeth. There was very little that Sunny did not enjoy biting. When they're playing Scrabble and she's bitten the corners <laughs> off of all the squares, <laughs> off of all the tiles yeah. for Scrabble. That baby, at times, in this movie, looks so fake, it makes me guttural laugh. Yeah, I know. Be- I, it, it's so bad. For most of it, they use the twins, but there are certain stunts where they cannot use human babies. Yeah, this is 2004. <laughs> 
And it looks very 2004. <laughs> okay, so guys, at the beginning of the movie, in the beginning of the book, the orphans are at Briny Beach. They love going to Briny Beach on cloudy days. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that means that nobody else is there. And there's plenty of time to think and enjoy the scenery. But approaching off of a trolley that's just arrived is Arthur Poe, senior banker at Mulchuary Money Management. And I love the detail you told me about how Mulchuary means petty. Yeah! <laughs> petty money management. Guys, Mr. Poe has come to Briny Beach with some very disturbing news. I'm afraid I must inform you of an extremely unfortunate event. I'm very, very sorry to tell you this, but your parents have perished in a fire that's destroyed your entire home. If you have ever lost someone very important to you, then you already know how it feels. And if you haven't, you cannot possibly imagine it. What's important to understand is that no one knows the exact cause of this fire. Their entire house burned down with their parents inside. What did they know? Right? What did the Baudelaire parents know? Bertrand, Beatrice, speak to us! And that whole sequence where they go back to the ruins of the fire. And it's so bleak. Their house occupied an entire city block. Yeah. And it's all just gone. (laughs) Bo's like, I thought you might like to see the devastation and destruction. This is a double homicide. Yeah, no, seriously. And, like, we never get any information on how the fire was started. Neither do the children. They don't in the books either. I mean, I've got theories. The spyglass that Klaus finds in his father's desk, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's next to a box that's labeled VFD. I know, yeah. They 100% intended to make more of these. But just drop the ball. (laughs) Yeah, they sure did. So now, for reasons that are not apparent... The Baudelaire orphans now have to go live with an actual stranger who is allegedly their cousin. I know that Mr. Poe tells them that Count Olaf is their third cousin twice removed or whatever, but is that actually documented? I mean, it must be. I mean, we just don't get any of that, you know what I'm saying? He's either your third cousin four times removed, or your fourth cousin three times removed. Either way, he's removed. But, like, but, 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 no, Carrie, that's not even the craziest thing. The craziest (laughs) thing is that these children were given to the bank. Yes, I know. They gave these children to the bank. Like, all of the things we hear about Beatrice and Bertrand throughout the book series, that really does make you question their judgment. Obviously, they have a shit ton of fucking money. (laughs) Yeah. And they knew that everybody and their brother wanted them and their money. And they have so many friends who are way closer and way more trustworthy than Count Free and Olaf. And to produce three extremely intelligent children, you would have to think, oh, they're very extremely intelligent. And they chose Poe? <laughs> yeah. They gave their kids to Poe and the bank? Straight to jail. It's right to jail. Right to jail for Arthur Poe. <laughs> Mr. Poe pulls up to uh, the curbside of the home of Justice Strauss. Catherine O'Hara is here. And like the children think for two seconds that they're going to live with Justice Strauss. They think this is the new home that they've come to. (laughs) And guys, I love her reaction to this. Your house is so beautiful. Oh, thank you. Please don't be strangers. You come and visit me anytime you like. Visit? You you mean you you don't live with Count Olaf? Live with, with Count Olaf? No. No, 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 no. He's, he's, he's my neighbor. Them just turning around and down through this grimy overpass tunnel. We see it. The residence of Count Olaf. It's so gray and disgusting and dilapidated. I love Sunny. She says in her gibberish, let's sleep outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, they're, they're just, guys, it's, it's, I can smell this house. <laughs> like, you just know it smells hella old in there. They go up to this front door. Oh, boy. With the carving of the eye on the front. That is, that is the insignia of Count Olaf, is the eye. Okay, but do we have time for me to talk about my quibble with this production? Because, admittedly, the description of the symbol in the first book and throughout the second and third is that this symbol is just an eye. But if a production assistant had bothered to look at the illustrations, yes, 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 they would understand that it doesn't just look like an eye. Yes, it spells VFD. Yes. But they took that at face value in the production team and just, yeah, everything just looks like an eye. But And, and Harry Potter's eyes were blue in the films. Okay. Okay, what? anyway. <laughs> Moving on, they knock on this door. Hello, hello, hello. I am your beloved Count Olaf. And welcome to my loverly home. May you find solace within the womb-like warmth of its... downy gloom. Sonny's gulp. From the moment he shows up in this movie, Jim Carrey is absolutely devouring the scenery, just chewing the scenery for all it's worth. I understand that Count Olaf is a character, very evil while being very dramatic and occasionally funny, but I just... I feel like Jim Carrey is giving theater energy, right? (laughs) Overactor! Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's playing to the back of the house when he doesn't have to. It's a feature film. Not Strike a (laughs) Fosse. Yeah, when he hits the bottom of that staircase, he's like, Strike a (laughs) Fosse! And like, remember, the two chief characteristics of Count Olaf is that he has a unibrow, like the bushiest unibrow, Mm -hmm. and he's also got the same tattoo of the eye on his ankle. And you guessed it, as soon as Mr. Poe is hurriedly shown out of the house, he's immediately turning the Baudelaire orphans into indentured servants. (laughs) Where do I sign for the fortune? I mean children. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) Like, he's just going to put these children to work until such a time that Violet becomes of age and he can take their fortune from them. Mm, Which, which, I'm sorry, that still doesn't make any sense. No, Like, he has literally not thought this through, because even if he were to wait until Violet was old enough, the money would be long to her. No, I know. And then if he killed her, the money would belong to Klaus. Yeah, no. And then if he killed him, <laughs> the money would belong to Sonny eventually. Again, we're in agreement that not a lot of the inheritance logistics make sense. Like, he makes no legal setup to inherit this at, the, at their deaths. Like... Exactly. Every morning, Count Olaf would order the Baudelaire's to do a great number of terrible chores, after which he would stalk off to his mysterious tower room. And as unfortunate as their situation seemed, it was only about to get worse. Talk to me about Count Olaf's acting troupe real quick. This little cult of actors he's got following him around. So we've got the hook-handed man. Mm-hmm. His actual name is Fernal, but we don't learn that till later. Absolutely not. We've got the uh, two white-faced women, who are these two lady actors in his troupe, who constantly have a inches worth of white powder on their face. We've got 
Um, the bald man with the long nose. <laughs> we've got the bald man with the long nose, and we've also got the uh, <laughs> the the hench person of indeterminate gender. Yeah, the person the person who looks like neither a man nor a woman. Exactly. Who's played by Craig Ferguson? Yeah, I know. Late night host Craig Ferguson. The uh, uh, the non-binary character. Exactly. <laughs> What is one of the first things he tasks the Baudelaire children with, Ross? I mean, I don't have time to read the list to you. <laughs> Carrie, that list is so long. I know, but skip to the pasta. And Well, he's all, they finish everything. That's the thing. They finish that whole goddamn list. Uh-huh. And he's like, uh, you're forgetting something. Make dinner for me and my theater troupe. So he wants Violet, Klaus, and Sonny to go out, buy, and prepare dinner. <laughs> For him and five other people. But they don't have any money or a shopping list. So they're just looking around this disgusting kitchen. Like, there's literally a bat in one of the cabinets. <laughs> yeah. And, like, Violet just pulls open this drawer, and there's all this loose pasta in there with, like, screws. You guys know about the loose drawer pasta. <laughs> The Baudelaire's are being extremely resourceful. They they need a pot to make this in. Sonny finds a spittoon that they wash out to, <laughs> to use as a pot. Can't handle it. And they get it all together and they put it on the table. They're asleep at the end of Olaf's rehearsal. And they all, all of the troop members are asleep. And they wake up and they see the meal laid out before them. And Count Olaf has the nerve to look at them and go, where's the roast beef? Putinesca. What did you call me? It's pasta. Pasta putinesca. Where's the roast beef? Roast beef? Beef, yes, roast beef. It's the Swedish term for beef that is roasted. He's such an idiot. I know, I know. And the thing is, is that, again, the tone just vacillates so quickly in this movie because he goes from being goofy to striking a child. Yeah, no, he's like, you all should be on bended knee thanking me for taking you in, but I also get to treat you as horribly as I want. And then Klaus has the audacity to get a little mouthy with him. Oh, well, no, he only does this because he picks up Sonny. Yeah. And he's like, put her down, and he smacks him across the face for it. <laughs> it's time you children learned a little respect. Put her down. Monster. They get thrown in their room, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Klaus is like, you understand this is fucking bullshit, right? Like, Why did our parents leave us with this monster? Yeah, like, how could they fucking do this to us? How dare they burn to death in a fire? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And Violet's like, okay, like, it's not that bad. Like, we're going to figure out a way to survive in this. We always do, right? Mm -hmm. Like. We, we, we're very resourceful. We're going to figure it out. She's like, it's like when they, it's like when mom and dad would be away on all their adventures and trips, you know, while we were at home. We'd always find a way to make our time count ourselves. It's so sad. And then it makes me sadder when like, you know, you know what I'm always talking about, how people in times of awfulness will try to scrape together whatever happiness they can and they do in that cramped little attic room they like set themselves up a nice little tent and they have that picture that's the uh the the, the silhouettes the silhouettes of their parents yeah because yeah when he asks her do you think anything will ever feel like home again and she ties up her hair and then they make the tent and they try to make it feel as homey as possible sanctuary is a word which here means a small safe place in a troubling world. Like an oasis in a vast desert, 
or an island in a stormy sea. The Baudelaire's enjoyed their evening in the sanctuary they have built together. But in their hearts, they knew that the troubling world lay just outside. A world which I'm sad to say can be described in two dismal words. Custody granted. No, guys, with the same brevity that is reserved for the middle of a Law & Order episode, Olaf is granted full custody of the orphans, and... And that hat. And that hat. And that hat that he's wearing. It's so tall. <laughs> it is. And on the way home from court... Olaf decides he's going to, quote, stop and get them a treat. He parks the car on one set of two train tracks. Seemingly in the middle of nowhere. Seemingly in the middle of nowhere. Did you see what the store is called? The Last Chance General Store, Mm -hmm. which doesn't show up until book eight. See, you're right. Yeah, they were pulling elements, but they weren't (laughs) setting themselves up for him correctly. He's going into the store. He locks the car. Mm -hmm. These locks don't just lock. They diss a fucking peer. <laughs> you can't operate them anymore, <laughs> so they can't get out. I, I always hate this moment. It makes my ass leak. Go! He took the keys. Try everything. <laughs> and then, guys, you know exactly what's coming. Violet picks up this book in the back seat that says inheritance law and you (laughs) (laughs) and they realize immediately they've been left on the train tracks so they'll be murdered by the oncoming train (laughs) and he'll be and count olaf will be able to inherit all of their money she fucking pulls a train schedule out of the book and it says 11 15 and it's circled It's, look, a marriage certificate. Yeah, I know. Leaning, that shot of them leaning around the corner of the window (laughs) to see that locomotive steaming full ahead in the distance. So this is where Violet gets to really show off her talents for the first time in the film. Again, she's a little MacGyver. Anything that's around her, she can turn it into something useful. And I think what they end up doing, they end up ripping some vinyl off of the seats to use as a strap. Yes. A spring out of these seats to Mm -hmm. use as like an accelerator. Mm -hmm. And then they have Sonny bite the head off a bobblehead that looks like that happiest little elf The littlest elf, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And what they're going to do is they're going to try and lasso the track switch for the train. Thank God for smoking windows. I know, right? Because they're able to push that open at least so they can shoot the elf thing to try and switch the track's trajectory on the track switcher. She could not make that shot again if she wanted to. It's Nickelodeon. I know. I know. And of course they managed to change the trajectory of the train. Just in time. Yeah, no. (laughs) Just as they're narrowly missed by the train, who comes pulling up very conveniently but Mr. Poe? Oh, God. And he's like, Olaf, did you leave these children fucking locked in the car on a train track when the train's coming? (laughs) He thinks that he let Sonny drive! And Olaf is like, oh, yeah, because Sonny's behind the wheel. (laughs) And he's like, no, I really can't allow you to keep them. Sorry about that custody thing. I'm going to take them to live elsewhere. And you're like, oh, thank God. Yeah, no kidding. 
And instead, we are taken to live with Dr. Montgomery Montgomery, renowned society herpetologist. Yeah, this is where the second book begins. The reptile room. And, like, the thing that I have written first for this section is as they're pulling up to the house, that fake-ass house and that fake-ass car. Oh, I know, I know. Because not a single thing was shot outdoors for this production. Isn't that funny? Everything's done on a soundstage in front of a green screen. (laughs) And, like, yeah, they go up to the door and we meet Uncle Monty. Monty was friends with the Baudelaire parents. Of course they were. Mm. Of course he was. And, like, literally he comes to the door with a banana python wrapped around his shoulders (laughs) like it's a shaw. Oh my goodness! Look at you! You must be Violet! Do you remember me? I don't suppose so. You were just a little baby at the time. And Klaus, we've never met. How do you do? What a firm grip, like a Burmese python. And I love Uncle Monty. This was honestly one of my favorite books. This is my favorite level in the video game. Yeah, I know. Because, like, it's so awful, that first book, right? And they get to Uncle Monty's, and that's the best it gets for them for the entire series. It's peak happiness in book two. Mind you, there are 13. Exactly. (laughs) I like, Uncle Monty has all these plans for him and the Baudelaire's. They're going to go away to Peru to study snakes. It's going to be a fun time. And when he's, like, telling him to get settled, then he's like, but first to the reptile room. This set is amazing. I just, uh, maybe we should get into herpetology, man. Like, this whole mansion that Uncle Monty lives in where there's just this huge greenhouse section with all these elaborate cages full of deadly snakes and interesting-looking snakes, the two-headed cobra. Mm-hmm. I'll just put the big fellow in his bed and introduce you to a few of my friends. Over here. That's the two-headed cobra. Well spotted. Is that a he or a she? I have no idea. Didn't think it polite to ask. And let's not forget Uncle Monty's latest discovery. Found him in Tanzania. Yeah, he did. (laughs) The incredibly deadly viper. Who is one of the most harmless and cutest uh, reptiles in the animal kingdom. That's what I have. The incredibly deadly viper that's actually a sweetheart. It is this gigantic motherfucking black snake. (laughs) That's actually just a cuddly cat. Yeah, for real. Not to worry, little one. You're all right. It can't possibly harm you. Here we go. The incredibly deadly viper couldn't have possibly harmed her? No, 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 no. The big softy. One of the least harmful and most friendly creatures in the animal kingdom. It's a misnomer. I only called him that to play a prank in those stuffed shirts down at the Herpetological Society. The thing that's really disturbing about this snake is that it can open its own cage, which I'm sorry to say is completely realistic. I know, Have you ever seen that video of that snake opening a door? I have. Yes, I have. Oh, that's horrifying. It is horrifying. And the other thing is, um, what's your room? Um, you, Monty has a reptile room. What kind of room do you have? I feel like Dr. Carrie Carrie has a room full of, you know, I'd really just like to study men. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know it's unethical to keep men prisoner for no other reason than to experiment on them, but I would really just love to understand you people more. The man cave. The man cave. (laughs) 
the reptile room. The reptile room. I don't know what Dr. Ross's, I don't know what Dr. Ross Ross's room would be. Uh, I feel like Dr. Ross Ross's room is full of quarter scale dioramas of actual disasters that have occurred in our nation's history. You know. The disaster den. The disaster den. Oh my God. <laughs> I love it. Yo. <laughs> like it's a little Game of Thrones theme style, little mechanical thing of all the famous disasters. Yes. <laughs> And now this is 1912, April 15th to be exact. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, another thing that the orphans notice, uh, Uncle uh, un- Uncle Monty tells them, listen, we're off to Peru soon. I'm taking you kids to Peru. We're going to go look for some new reptiles in South America. You know, wouldn't that be nice? Get away for a little while. But why are we getting out of town? Violet, do you know snakes are more afraid of you than you are of them? Few people do. When threatened, a snake will retreat to a place that is quiet, safe, remote. A sanctuary where it can feel out of danger. That's why Peru. Because the thing he's not saying, and that he would never say, because we never got any more of these movies, he's going to take them to VFD people. He's going to be there with them. He's not saying that. But that is the reason they're leaving. Are you tell are you saying because we get the shot of him with the spyglass on his hip? Yeah, he's got the same spyglass that Klaus found in his dad's drawer. And Klaus is like, hey, my dad has one. And Dr. Monty's like, shut up. <laughs> We're not talking about that right now. <laughs> but of course, this is all derailed by the arrival of one Mr. Stefano. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. I am uh, looking for Dr. Montgomery Montgomery. I am uh, Stefano. I am an Italian man, and uh, I am here to assist him in his uh, research uh, as best I can, as well as to uh, facilitate and uh, remain observatory. Of course, Count Olaf is here in disguise to once again try and scheme on the Baudelaire's fortune. Uh, Looking after the reptile room and assisting Dr. Montgomery Montgomery is a uh, new assistant he has hired, uh, Mr. Stefano. And like, they they know, they know right away. He thinks he's so fucking slick. He's such an idiot. Here's the thing though, I do think it's incongruent because of course the kids see through it. I am Stefano. Yeah, exactly. I am an Italian man. But because Jim Carrey can just become people, become another person, become become another another person. person. He should have been the master of disguise, not Dana Carvey. Exactly. But like, I feel like Jim Carrey is making Olaf look better at being these characters than he actually should be. (laughs) She literally immediately goes, Count Olaf. (laughs) Yeah. And he just goes, oh. Um, and now, why would uh, why would you say something like that? I uh, I have never uh, met uh, such a person as a Count Olaf, but uh, if I had, I'm sure he would look and sound completely different. You're Olaf, and we're not letting you in. The kids are on high alert. They have already been through this once. They want. Uncle Monty to see that Stefano is not who he says he is. Because again, Uncle Monty has an assistant named Gustav who is just conveniently absent because Olaf tied him to the front of a moving train. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so that he could take his place. The kids are trying to get a covert message to Monty. 
That Stefano is not who he says he is. It's because they know that Stefano's not going to let them alone with him mm-hmm. for the entire time he's here. So they've got to out him some way, right? Like, they paint the letters imposter on that coral snake mm-hmm. that's always treating Monty like a tree. Yeah. It sneaks up, it roll. it's, it sna- snakes. <laughs> yeah. It snakes up on Uncle Monty and pulls itself tight to spell imposter written on it. Monty actually believes them. Oh, yeah. But not for the reasons they want him to. And did you see the way he kept glancing into my satchel where I keep the exotic snake venoms? Your children were right. Stefano is an imposter. Yes. He's a spy from the Herpetological Society. He's here to steal the incredibly deadly fiber. No. No, Uncle Monty. He's a spy. Sent to spy on me by the Herpetological Society. And they're like, no, you idiot. It's Count Olaf, like... He thinks this goon is here to steal all of his reptile secrets, and he won't listen to the children about any other explanation. Even though, see, that's another thing that's incongruent, and that's really more Lemony Snicket's fault than anybody's. Monty knows who Count Olaf is. You know what I mean? And I feel like he should have taken their concerns more seriously. Yeah, but like they never got to... But the thing is, they never get to say the words Count Olaf. That's true. You he won't I, listen. Yeah, and so they get sent to bed because they've got an early start. They're going to Peru, right? Mm-hmm. When she creep, When Violet creeps out into the hall <gasps> at night and Stefano, Olaf, is sitting in a rocking chair in the middle of the hallway, a little bit down the hallway with a knife stuck in the arm yeah, of just, the chair. Just twisting it. Do you have a hall pass? I didn't think so. And that door just closes again, and you're like, all uh, right. I didn't think so. <laughs> um, and then, oh no, not the shot of Uncle Monty being creeped up on by a Stefano Olaf-like figure. Oh no, see, this is the thing. Like, I remember, this is another core memory, where you think the kids are going to get away with Monty. And then that elevator dropping inside of you when you realize that Olaf has murdered Monty in the middle of the night. It is a curious thing, the death of a loved one. Uncle Monty? It's like walking up the stairs to your bedroom in the dark and thinking that there's one more stair than there is. Your foot falls down through the air and there's a sickly moment of dark surprise Ooh. Yeah, no. Oh my God! And that Doctor Montgomery Montgomery is Doctor Dead Dead. Yeah, for real. Yeah, that's the middle illustration in that book, right? Yeah, it's him slumped in over in the chair. Yeah. Oh, it's awful. And the thing is, another thing that annoys me. I'm so sorry. They completely bind this uh, cause of death into the larger narrative because we've met the incredibly deadly viper. Yeah. And in the movie. That's the snake they blame Uncle Monty's death on Mm -hmm. because the incredibly deadly viper can let itself out of its cage. And the thing is, in the book, he's actually murdered by the Mamba Dumal. And Stefano says he was murdered by a snake bite from the Mamba Dumal, but the Mamba Dumal strangles its victims. It doesn't bite. It's not venomous. But, but in the movie, we're using the incredibly deadly viper. Exactly. And also, I love how Olaf's henchmen are always around. Yeah, just playing different characters in this scheme. And here they are posing as crime scene investigators. Oh, boy. Like, literally, Poe is there. Constable Cedric the Entertainer is there. <laughs> but all the rest of them are Olaf's henchmen. Yeah, I think the man with hooks for hands is the doctor. The big cage door is open, no snake. Dead guy. You know what I'm thinking? 
I'm thinking, who woke me up at 9 in the morning for this? It's definitely a snake bite. There's no question about it. Snake bite? No question about it. Thanks, Doc. No, you don't understand. The incredibly deadly viper couldn't have killed him because it's one of the least dangerous and most friendly creatures in the animal kingdom. You mind if I skip the paperwork on this? I think that'd be best. The children are distraught, right? And they're like, listen, this guy is Count fucking Olaf. <laughs> And they're like, he's got a tattoo on his ankle of an eye. And he and Count Olaf lifts his, lifts his pant leg. It's not there because he's put makeup on it. And Violet says as much. He's an actor. He covered it with makeup. <laughs> and the adults are like, oh, that's preposterous. Like, what? What? I can't. Uh, and like Poe and Constable Cedric the Entertainer <laughs> are more than willing to just allow the children to go in Stefano's custody. For him to take to Peru. But guys, Sonny saves the day. Yeah, because the incredibly deadly Viper has once again gotten out of its cage. And it's playing with Sonny. Yeah, she finds it like hanging from the bottom of a desk. They try they tried to they tried to tell. They tried to tell Poe that the incredibly deadly viper wouldn't hurt a fucking fly. Because they know that. And they and Poe turns around and sees Sonny cuddling with it and wrestling <laughs> around with it. Like it's a big puppy. Damn it. This was such a good character. I love the spinning fake hand. Oh yeah. On the ground and all of the clothes that have been taken off because Olaf and his henchmen have taken off. Yeah, they've just they're gone again. Like a thief in the night. And that's the end of the reptile room. Yeah. We are now, we then move into book 3, The Wide Window. And we're in the car with Mr. Poe and he's like, "The authorities are hot in pursuit of Mr. Stefano children. Rest assured of that." From his eyebrowless forehead to his untattooed ankle, the Italian fiend. And they all roll their eyes at each other. I just, I just, it, the roll doll of it all. Yeah, I know. Adults are fucking idiots and they will fail you. Yes! They will not protect you and they will neglect you. You are on your own, children. Like, for 13 bucks! Yeah, like... These children are left to their own devices and it's so frustrating. <laughs> this is, um, I forget what the town is called. But I know in the book they arrive on Damocles Dock. Isn't it just called Lacrimos? It, like- mu- it must just be the village of Lacrimos. Lake Lacrimos is this expansive, gigantic, great lake. It's like, yeah, it's like Lake Michigan. It's uh, huge. I love that. I love this um, contraption that's pedaling its way across the lake with the <laughs> car on it. Though still in the clutches of a clueless banker, the Baudelaire's celebrated their unmasking of Count Olaf as they skimmed their way across the icy surface of Lake Lacrimos. But Klaus wasn't the sort to think on the surface of anything. He knew there was something beneath their journey, even though all he had to go on was a spyglass, the knowledge of another terrible fire, and two words on a slip of paper. Aunt Josephine? They are going to live with Josephine Antwistle, another uh, friend of their parents. We gotta talk about this damn house she lives in. I know. Um, here's the thing, guys. There's a lot of mountains around Lake Lacrimose, and at the top of one of them, lives Josephine. This house that Aunt Josephine lives in is a uh, it's a whole allegory, metaphor, whatever for her state of mind. Yeah, because Aunt Josephine is a panophobic, which basically means she has a fear of most things. Like a pathological fear of everything. And like, guys, oh, they've made Meryl just look perfect as oh, Aunt Josephine, they haven't sure they? they sure have. This house she's welcoming them into 
is on the side of a cliff. And I mean that. No, yeah. I mean that. Guys, Held up by a few stilts. These, these, these wooden boards that are holding this house up are built into the side of this mountain, into the side of this cliff, and the entirety of the house is hanging out over the cliff. <sighs> Which, I mean, I loved this as a child. No, yeah, it's so scary. Because it was scary and cool. Children, I must ask you not to use any of the doorknobs in the house. Just push on the wood of the door, and it'll open. Why? Well, I'm always afraid that the doorknobs will shatter into a million tiny pieces, and one of them will hit my eye. Delmo is not a word. <laughs> I can see that I'm going to have to teach her proper English. <laughs> Aunt Josephine is very nervous. Mm -hmm. As you said, she's afraid of everything. She's also got a very serious love of grammar. Yes, grammar is her life's joy. Which, fuck off, Aunt Josephine. Like, she has a whole library just of grammar books. Like, I am an actual English major, and from the bottom of my heart, fuck off. <laughs> I've never been to a house with turbulence. No, yeah. Like, every, like, minute or so, the house will just shake from the wind. Yeah, just like a strong breeze hits it, and, like, it's like we're on a plane. She's like, sorry about the temperature. Sometimes it gets so cold in here, I can hardly stand it. And they're like, turn on the radiator? <laughs> and she's like, oh, no, it could explode. And they're yeah. like, well, then why do you fucking have one? Exactly. Why do you live teetering on the edge of a cliff if you're afraid of everything. She's showing them photo albums of her life like before she came to live at Lake Lacrimose. She used to be quite the adventurous little gal, right? Mm -hmm. With her husband, Ike. And it turns out that, like we said, Ike and Josephine used to be good friends with their parents. Mm -hmm. We see that big picture of her with their parents and with Uncle Monty, and they've all got those golden spy glasses. Yeah. And she won't answer any <laughs> questions about it. And Klaus is like, why do you have all these spy glasses? And she's like, no, 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 no. Why, why do you all have these spy glasses? I, I don't like the way I look in that picture. <clears throat> Did I die in a fire? No, 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 no. Silly child, no. He was eaten by leeches. Come, I'll show you. Aunt Josephine takes them into this back room. Watch the chandelier, children! <laughs> if it falls, it could impale you! As she's pulling this chain down, and it's opening this, like, hole in the wall at the back and this is the wide window which itself. is also shaped like an eye yeah also shaped like an eye and it looks out over the entirety of Lake Lacrimose we gotta talk about the way Aunt Josephine lost her husband Ike okay because this is ridiculous Lake Lacrimose is plenty in what are known as the Lacrimose leeches they're carnivorous the Lacrimose leeches can have a very keen sense of smell they can smell food from a mile away mm -hmm. and they will they will eat you if they if they, they will literally eat you because they can smell you and you are food to them that's why and we've heard this as children you should always wait an hour before swimming after eating i told him ike you must wait one hour before going into the water but he only waited 45 minutes and <laughs> the way that I 
love Meryl Streep so much. The way she gets down on her knees in tears and flings herself in Violet's lap. I don't think there's any acting here from Emily Browning. No, she I looks know. genuinely terrified. And there's also this room off to the side, away from the window. Klaus! That room is private. It it was Ike's room. Yeah. You know that room's got all the answers inside. And like many rooms that have all the answers, it will vanish before we can properly investigate. Also, Ross, you have to talk about another one of her irrational fears. They're like, okay, Aunt Josephine, if Lake Lacrimose, if this house, if it all makes you so unhappy being here in this state of mind... Why don't you move away? <laughs> and she's like, oh, no, I couldn't do that. No, 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 no. I'm terrified of realtors. Of realtors? <laughs> Ding dong. Opens the door. It's Jane Lynch is a realtor. <laughs> there are two kinds of fears. Rational and irrational. Being afraid of realtors is an irrational fear. Is this a bad time? Meryl, the scr- Meryl's a great screamer. She sure is. She is an amazing screamer. God love her. We go into town the next day, right? And of course, she's terrified of everything. Children, watch out for that cart. It could break loose and run us over. <laughs> Don't eat that fruit. The pits could become lodged in our throats. And they're literally just like, okay, we need you to be still. Yeah, we no. We need you to be still for like five seconds. Calm the F down. And like, they're they're trying to get her to stay stable and they bump into someone and you fucking guessed it. <laughs> it's Captain Sham. Oh, Which God. is just funny. Because he's a sham. No, yeah, I know. Because it's Count Olaf, it's of Ca- course. It's Count Olaf. No, don't you jump. Sweet jumped up, Jehovah. <laughs> I love that. And Josephine. Oh, allow me to introduce myself. No, allow Klaus and I to introduce him. Klaus this... and me. Oh. It doesn't matter. This doesn't is... matter. <laughs> are you checking me, girl? Why? Perhaps it's just the ramblings of an expert fisherman, but. Grammar is the number one most important thing in this here world to me. It is. She falls for this nonsense hook, line, and sinker. Allow Klaus and I to introduce him. This is Klaus and me. Stop it, Aunt Josephine. fucking backhand her. Like, and that's the thing. It's clear that Olaf has read up on who she is. Olaf knows who she is. That's what I'm saying. Is that as an audience, we just believe he's done his research. But he's met Josephine before, which... Also makes me think less of Josephine and her observational abilities. Olaf tells Josephine that he also lost his wife to the lacrimose leeches and that he fucking loves grammar. He's buku about it. So she is head over heels for Captain Sham, right? Indeed, indeed. And she tells the kids, listen, I'm going to take Captain Sham back to my place. And And you uh, guys do the grocery shopping and then come back for dinner. Yeah, no, seriously. I'm like, Aunt Josephine, (laughs) are we trying to get nasty? And the kids are like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. No, exactly. It's so frustrating as a reader throughout this series. I mean, Klaus does try his damnedest. He he says, fuck it, I'm not doing this again. (laughs) Knocks Sham over and tries to pull down his pant leg to expose the tattoo on his ankle. It's a peg leg, guys. He did better this time. He did do better this time. And of course, Josephine is horrified. Like, what the fuck? Why'd you do that? (laughs) But no, there's no recourse here. And the children eventually come home with groceries for dinner. A hurricane is coming. Hurricane Herman. Hurricane Herman. And they enter the house and it feels like nobody's home. 
And they walk into that back room where the wide window is. Smashed. Yeah, there's a huge hole in it. Something's been thrown through it. Taped to that chain used to open the window is a suicide note from Aunt Josephine. This is awful. Violet, Klaus, and Sonny, by the time we read this, my life will be at its end. My heart is as cold as Ike, and I find life unbearable. Unbearable? Go on. I know you children may not understand the sad life of a dowager. Dowager has one D. It doesn't matter. Keep going. They start reading through the note, and they're like, wait a minute. This note is rife with grammatical errors. Which, as we all know, is Josephine's lot in life, to be grammatically correct at all times. And, like, Klaus is like, no, hold on, this is nonsense. Yeah, she was like, she's trying to tell us something. This is a message where she's like, where she's misspelling words when she says, my heart is as cold as Ike instead of ice. And that's one of my favorite elements of this entire franchise is... The decoding aspect of so many of the plot points. Oh, I know. They get a piece of paper and they have to, you know, extrapolate from the text clues, locations, crucial information. I love that shit. And so through through deducing all of her grammatical and spelling errors, it spells out a message. Two words. Curdled cave. And like, as they're realizing this, the wind is really starting to kick up outside. <laughs> and they're like, okay, I guess we need to go find Aunt Josephine at Curdled Cave. I don't know how we're gonna fucking do that. But before they can leave, that door to that, quote, private room, Ike's room, mm-hmm. blows open and that whole room is just full of all of these photographs, these documents, these books about a series of fires that Ike was obviously investigating before he died. Mm -hmm. And like, and again, there's all of the eye imagery in that room as well. And the kids are like, well, this is significant. Too bad that the house is about to come down around us and we don't have time to go through it all. Your parents were in the Illuminati. (laughs) Yeah, no, seriously. The eye is literally a symbol of the Illuminati. (laughs) And a symbol of VFD, just saying. I love that so much. It was the Illuminati. He was investigating fires. Klaus, we gotta go. The house is beginning to fall apart mm-hmm. because of the hurricane. Also, has there never been a hurricane here? I guess not. The, the lake is big enough to have hurricanes. How has this home, like, survived so many hurricanes? <laughs> as soon as they go through that door back into the kitchen, the back half of the house falls away. <laughs> If they had just been a second too late, I know they would have been dead. All of the appliances start coming loose from the walls. <laughs> the, the, the fridge is shaking loose out of the corner because the house is obviously bowing downward and allowing things to slide towards them. Come away from the fridge. If it falls, it can crush you flat. <laughs> All of the irrational things Josephine had to say. The stove lights on fire because the gas line's been exposed and the <laughs> telephone exploded. Like. <laughs> Oh, my God. And the stove falls out of the back of the house. But the burning gas line starts heating up one of the crystallized doorknobs. I love the way Violet is like, no fucking way. (laughs) No way. (laughs) 
And yeah, that doorknob shatters and explodes. That burning stove falls on the Aflac duck at the bottom of the cliff. <laughs> Aflac, Aflac. Thank you very much. Rest in peace, Gilbert Gottfried. They hit the floor and cover their faces as to not be hit by flying crystallized pieces. And when they uh, reemerge, the only part of the house that is still standing is the floor they are on. Yeah, it's like a platform that is held up by three stilts floating away from the cliffside. There's a whole gap that they cannot make it a jump between them and the actual cliff. Of course not. And so I think Violet comes up with this scenario where there's an anchor on the wall behind them, right? What's left of the wall. How convenient. And they take it down and they use the fire extinguishers to roll it across the floor to the edge of the platform and they're going to push the anchor over the edge and dislodge the beam. That's holding them up. That's free, we're gonna break that beam. Break it? Yes. That's the only thing keeping us up. Exactly. Are you sure you're tied your hair tight enough? On three. beam and then there's just that one stilt that's holding up the platform and they have to lean forward so that the platform will connect with the cliff yeah and they can jump off i have didn't this exact same stunt happen in the fellowship of the ring the minds of moria of it all <laughs> the exact same thing did happen in lord of the rings <laughs> when aragorn's telling the hobbits lean forward yeah <laughs> And yeah, they jump off on that cliff. The orphans jump off on that cliff and the rest of the house just falls into the lake behind them. <laughs> and so yeah, they take a little canoe across Lake Lacrimos to Curdled Cave. It's a sailboat, but... It's whatever. It's not. I'm just saying, it's not a canoe. Does it matter? It doesn't. Does it really matter? It's a dinghy, for crying out loud. Yeah, they, they, they navigate the aftermath of a storm all the way to Curdled Cave. And yes... Aunt Josephine is there. This is really the point in the movie where my blood pressure starts to escalate. She says, did you bring groceries? You gotta be kidding me, right, lady? Groceries? We just came through a storm. Well, so? How do you expect us to live in this cave if you didn't bring any food? And they're like, you did not fucking put that in your message. (laughs) That you expect us to live here with you? You're like, could you imagine curdled cave? Please stop at Costco. How do you expect us to live in this cave if you didn't bring any food? Live in the cave? No, 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 and Josephine, you have to come back with us. You willed us to Captain Shemmer, the only proof we have, it's a lie. Oh, no, 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 no. It's much too dangerous, children, I'm very sorry. Too dangerous? You're our guardian, you're supposed to take care of us. I'm not gonna talk about it anymore. She's like, no, my day's already been so terrible. Cal Olaf made me write that terrible letter with all of those grammatical errors. She's such a victim, Ross. Yeah, I know. Um, Josephine Antwistle, how you turn out in the books and in this movie? Hate it. Oh, no, I really, really hate her in this part of the film because... What ends up happening is Klaus convinces Aunt Josephine to leave the cave. Because Curdled Cave is for sale. And you know who's going to come by the cave? Realtors. Realtors. (laughs) And Aunt Josephine just can't hang. She can't stand the idea. So she agrees to get back in the little dinghy with these three orphans so they can row back to shore and tell everybody about what Count Olaf did. And guys, even in the boat... 
The kids are begging Aunt Josephine for answers. They're showing her that sketch of the eye they found in Ike's room, Mm -hmm. sticking it in her face. What does this mean? And you know what? Josephine does confirm to them as much, yes, yes, we were all investigating fires. Me, Ike, your parents, Uncle Monty. It was a thing. We were in a little club together. And she's like, children, there are people in this world that start fires and those who put them out, which is the essence of the society that is investigated in the books. The volunteer fire department. The volunteer fire department, but that is not at all expanded upon here. Children, there are good people and bad people in the world. The ones who start the fires and the ones who put them out. Who's doing this? Is it Olaf? I've said too much already. Your parents knew the answer to that. And look what happened to them. My parents? But all of this is brought to a screeching halt by an onslaught of leeches heading towards their dinghy. (laughs) It's the leeches! (laughs) I don't like the noises they're making. I guess it's a good thing none of us have eaten in a while then. And remember, guys... (laughs) They are trying to help the situation. They're trying to row the boat away. They're trying to do whatever they can. Sinking, sinking, sinking. And I'm like, Meryl, could you help maybe for a second? No, the leeches are chewing the bottom of the boat. And it's starting to leak everywhere. And they're like, what is with this onslaught of leeches? Why are they here all of a sudden? (laughs) Oh my God, because Aunt Josephine ate a fucking banana that they had on them. And she had the peel on her person. And the leeches smelled it. What a fucking idiot. She spent years and years crying about her dead-ass husband because he ate too soon and took food too close to water and got eaten by leeches. And here she is having a fucking banana at the end of a hurricane in the middle of Lake Lacrimose. She put those children in danger. I hate it. There's something way more unpleasant, though, emerging out of the fog, as Lemony Snicket says. It's Count Olaf in a skiff. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. The way their faces just fall. Aunt Josephine's gonna tell everyone what happened. And then I'll be arrested and sent to jail, and you'll live happily ever after with a friendly guardian, spending your time inventing things and reading books and sharpening your little monkey teeth, and bravery and nobility will prevail at last, and this wicked world will slowly but surely become a place of cheerful harmony, and everyone will be singing and dancing and giggling like the littlest elf. A happy ending. Is that what you had in mind? Because I hardly think that anybody is going to believe a dead woman. (laughs) Oh no, guys, the way... Again, you think Aunt Josephine might in this moment say hell no, right? Klaus says hell no, you're not going to touch Aunt Josephine. And Aunt Josephine's like, oh no, 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 I won't tell anybody anything, I promise. (gasps) This woman! She goes, you can have the fortune and you can have the children and hands the baby to Olaf! She's going to offer up these three children's lives in exchange for her own... She's like, I'll go away. I'll dye Dye my my hair. hair. I'll change Change my my name. name. I'll never say anything to anybody. And Olaf, I don't know why, but in the moment, Olaf is considering letting her go. And oh boy, does he let her go. Because what happens, Ross? When when they're talking to each other and they're trying to work something out, and he goes, On the other hand, with that little stunt of yours at the window, you hadn't been a very trustworthy person. But... I could show a little mercy. Oh! <gasps> haven't. What? Yeah, yeah, you said hadn't. That's bad grammar. You should have said, you haven't been a very trustworthy person. Oh my god! Uh, 
guys. She could not hold her fucking tongue. She, she had to point out his grammatical error. And with that, Olaf just sets the boat to drift away from the bo- from the skiff that she is still in. Mm-hmm. And he's just she's holding on to his hands like, no, please don't leave me. And the boat's just inching away. And you're like, oh, shit. He's leaving her to be eaten by the leeches. <laughs> Lemony Snicket. Aunt Josephine! You can't do it! Aunt Josephine! Well, you get the picture. Just the, the shot of the banana peel coming up in the water. Yeah, I know. Floating to the surface. Look at my notes! I'd kill her too. She's awful. <laughs> <laughs> she is. She is. Aunt Josephine? Not a good person. No. Like, not, not in the end. Not in the end. Not when it came right down to it, which makes me so puzzled. She used to be a very active member of this organization that her parents were involved with, and on the right side of it, too. And why would she do this? Because I think that losing Ike really did warp her as a person. Or maybe it's that she escaped Olaf so many times in her life. Yeah. That, oh. Yeah. That she just didn't think she was going to make it this time, but like... My God. And then who else shows up? Mr. Poe and (laughs) Constable Cedric the Entertainer. Because, because reasons. Here's the thing we didn't mention way back when Olaf lost the kids the first time. The train incident? That's not in the books. No, of course not. That was to divert us away from the bad beginning and move us on. The ending of the bad beginning, the actual ending takes place at the end of this film adaptation. Olaf takes the kids back, and now his big plan to get access to the Baudelaire fortune without murdering them is, dun-da-da-da, marry a 14-year-old girl. He should have not been able to have them back in the first place. Poe just decides that he's different now. Yeah, I know. Which is stupid because he saved them from the leeches, air quote. Yeah, that's just a mechanic for the film to work. Yeah. And like, yeah, honestly, this is a real thing. If a minor wants to get married, they can do so with the permission of their legal guardian. Which is Count Olaf. And he is going to marry Violet in front of an audience. Like, this is his whole plan. It's the marvelous marriage. It's a play he's written where at the end... Count Olaf's character marries Violet's character. Of course, he's going to force Violet to be in the play. Mm -hmm. And in order to make the marriage, quote, valid, he's cast Justice Strauss, an actual justice of the peace, with the ability to validate marriages in the role of the, what would you call it? The efficient. The efficient, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's, this is all going to happen live in front of everybody. Oh my God. I love that all of the actors in Count Olaf's troupe, while still trying to commit evil acts, still wanted to give a good performance. Yeah, I know. Like when they're taking people's <laughs> coats as they're coming in, and he goes, Critic? There's a critic, and it's Dustin Hoffman. Why is Dustin Hoffman here? <laughs> I don't understand it in the slightest. Okay, sir. Don't try to get on my good side. In order to keep Klaus and Sonny, um, let's say, quiet while this play is going on, Olaf has locked Sonny in a cage that is currently dangling over the ground on the top floor of his home mm-hmm. while the play takes place in his backyard. Nothing in the world will keep the cow from his beloved Play is 
getting started. And nothing in the world. Nothing in the world. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing. This is so ridiculous. The camp of it all. Again, I don't really remember what the plot of the marvelous marriage is I, supposed to be. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't matter because <laughs> we get right down to it, right? It's the, something about the Count playing this, I, I don't know. Like this, this Errol Flynn type character. Yeah, this this illustrious man of mystery who is just so great and he's so marvelous and must get married. And <laughs> stupid. I don't think Violet's character factors into it very much at all. No. They do some singing and dancing, and then we come down to the marriage bit. And while the whole marriage scene is happening, with a reluctant Violet being forced to be on stage, because in Count Olaf's pocket, he's got the radio that is allowing him to communicate to whoever is in the tower controlling Sonny's cage. Yeah, like, if you make one wrong move, I'm going to drop your sister from three stories. Exactly. And Klaus decides, fuck it, throws away his donkey costume, and... (laughs) Yeah, he was forced to play an ass. And also, who invites an ass to their wedding? No, I mean many people. Yeah, many people. Because Violet is trapped on stage with Olaf, he's the one who has to be the inventive mind now, right? Mm-hmm. There's always something. And he finds an old um, umbrella skeleton. Yeah. Which he fashions into a grappling hook. It's actually quite brilliant. With this... With this uh, uh, I, I, with this old rope that he finds, right? And he throws it up the tower. It somehow sticks, and he climbs all the way up that tower to the tower room where Sonny is dangling out the window mm-hmm. in the cage. Sonny, where's the key? The key to the lock. He's in this room, and he's looking around, and he notices there's this window in the tower across from Sonny. And because Klaus is like, Sonny, what do I do? How do I get you out of here? And she's like, the eye. And like he walks over to it and he takes that piece of paper out of his pocket that he found in Ike's room of the, you know. The eye. Pentagram eye or whatever. Uh-huh. And it looks exactly like the window. And it it is it is a drawing of the window, basically. And you're like, oh, that's significant. And this eye that's in this window is got glass in it. Right. It's like a big magnifying glass. Yeah. And we've gotten to the point on stage where we're signing the marriage certificate. Vows have been said between Violet and Olaf, and they're signing the marriage certificate. Violet tries to sign it in her in her uh, left hand. Because that is how she gets out of it in the book. Yeah, because it's not with her hand. She's right-handed. It invalidates the marriage. Yeah. But for some goddamn reason, that's not good enough. Well, because it works better with how they've made it work here. Because... Klaus is looking through this window and he notices it's got handles on either side of it. And he takes both handles and he's looking through this magnifying, this magnified piece of glass. We start to hear Mr. Poe in voiceover the day he told them their parents died. Yeah. And we can see through the lens, through this refracted lens, the ruin of the Baudelaire mansion. Children, I'm afraid I must inform you of a of an extremely unfortunate event. I'm very, very sorry to tell you this, but your parents have perished in a fire that's destroyed your entire home. These things don't just happen. This spyglass is pointing at their home. Count Olaf literally used the sun to burn down their home. Which is just narratively unnecessary. We don't actually know what the cause of the Baudelaire fire is, 
And even if you were Which to is co- why this leads me to believe they weren't making more. They weren't seriously thinking about making more. No, Ross, Because I really, why would they fucking do this? Because I really just believe they didn't read past the third book. Because you know what lies under the Baudelaire mansion. There are more probable explanations for how the Baudelaire fire started. But they just didn't read past the third book. So, like, yeah, they just, they made this ending so complicated for no reason because I guarantee you the PA had not gotten that far in the books. <laughs> Violet signs the marriage certificate, crosses the T's, dots the I's, and that's it. Olaf is like, thank you for coming to our play. The show is over. I'm married now. Yeah, no, this is real. This is real. He holds the marriage certificate and says, this is valid. <laughs> and he's not even trying to hide it anymore. He's like, because he thinks he got away with it. And he's like, I married a child with a justice of the peace and you all <laughs> fucking watched it happen. Just Poor justice. Strauss. I know. Oh my god. What have I done? I'm sorry. I didn't know. <laughs> and I'm like, you're part of VFD. No, yeah, I know. I know. You're part of fucking VFD. She's part of it. How does she not know? I don't. I don't get it. I know. I, I don't get it. No, you're right. It's a Nickelodeon movie. <laughs> they warped the books, okay? Yes. And so did that fucking Netflix series you love so much. Not by much. Whatever. <laughs> okay, you know what? Yes, the Nickelodeon movie did a worse job than the series did. Is that what you want to hear? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I know I was like, oh, it's superior. It's superior for me. Okay? That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> That's one. Not in general. That's Okay, one. I won't be so general about it next time. <laughs> I don't know who I am, but I sound like a yassified Trump. You do, kind <laughs> of, actually. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, and... The crowd is like, oh my god, we did just watch a child marriage. Yeah. Didn't we? And Poe's like, you monster, and everybody's getting upset. Oh, the nerve of him to act surprised. And Olaf is like, listen, the marriage is valid. I'm entitled to her money. And there's nothing you can do about it. Suck a dick, dumb shits. Suck a dick, dumb shits. (laughs) They are dumb shits. (laughs) Every adult in this universe is a dumb shit. Oh, I'm the monster. I'm the monster. You're the monster. Come on. Come on. These children tried to tell you, but you wouldn't listen. No one ever listens to children. Come on. Think you're Come on. Meanwhile, at the top of the tower, Klaus is praying for sun, and this one beam of sunshine comes through the clouds and into the tower, reflects off all those mirrors into the lens, and he's aiming it at Olaf. They should have just set Olaf on fire. They really should have. quite honest. That would have been the end of this series. <laughs> they would have just, just emulate Olaf. It would be fine. <laughs> but he burns the marriage certificate in his hand. The certificate says that I have the fortune now. Come on. And there's nothing you can do about it! What do you think? Too diabolical? Give me some feedback. Ah! And then the crowd converges on Olaf? (laughs) And... I know. Olaf goes to prison. Sort of. And the judge... (laughs) The judge says that Olaf has to pay for his crimes by experiencing everything he put the orphans through, which is just not something you can enforce in law. (laughs) 
but this is fiction. Imagine your punishment for hitting someone with a car by accident was getting hit with a car by accident. <laughs> an eye for an eye makes the world <laughs> blind. And we see Olaf wrestling with the leeches, being failed by the rickety house. What, did they rebuild Josephine's house just to knock it down again? And then he's him, on the train yeah, track. him trying to get out of the car before the train hits him. <laughs> Baudelaire's had triumphed, a word which here means unmasking a cruel and talentless arsonist and solving the mystery of the Baudelaire fire. <laughs> if only justice were as kind. After all that happens, we hear that he escapes prison anyway. Well, because a jury of his peers voted to overturn his sentence. Fuck adults. I know! Fuck the adults in this series. And, like, this whole ending just kind of peters out because... Yeah, they have this really sad sequence where they go back to the Baudelaire house one more time. And it's like they when they walk into it, it's like it was. Yeah. But then it slowly fades into the charred existence it lives now. It's so sad. And then they hear the letter thing that Violet invented. They hear it ding. Somebody dropped a letter in the mailbox. <laughs> At this burned down house. At this burned down house. Who do you think is going to be there to receive the mail, Mr. Postman? And they're looking at it, and they're like, look at this. This has been all over the world. I don't, and Klaus is like, I don't even recognize some of these stamps. This is the letter that their parents never sent from Europe. Mm -hmm. Like, the parents sent the letter, but it just got diverted over and over again. All over the world. And it's just now coming back to their house. It's the letter that never came. Oh, this makes me so sad. And they open up the letter, they open up the envelope, and there's a spyglass in it. Yeah. And it's got the letter. We hope to have you back in our arms soon, darlings. But in case this letter arrives before our return, know that we love you. It fills us with pride to know that no matter what happens in this life, that you three will take care of each other with kindness and bravery and selflessness, as you always have. And remember one thing, my darlings, and never forget it. That no matter where we are, know that as long as you have each other, you have your family, and you are home. And, like, this ending ultimately comes to nothing! Yeah, Lemony Snicket just being like, and they went on to be more sad after that. Yeah, like... <laughs> Like, Where will they go? What will they do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Sorry, that was involuntary. And like, they just the thing is to me, they were obviously going to make more of these. Because if they weren't, why incorporate the VFD thing at all? Yeah, guys, this has been a misfire. Um, uh, the only reason I really wanted to talk about this, because as I love the series of Unfortunate Events, and this is a Nickelodeon movie, mm -hmm. so that's why we talked about this this week. <laughs> I really just wanted to talk about the books, but again, we need a separate podcast for that. Oh my or god. Or come join us on Patreon next year. Maybe. Maybe do long form like wouldn't that be fun to do long form lit? It would be. There's just like no audio clips to use from it. Except I guess maybe the audiobooks. We could use the audio or we could do it ourselves. We could also do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. I'll but, I will but, tell you guys, if you guys are fans of this series, I am on a new mission now, rereading them as an adult. I am gonna find out what is going on with that GD sugar bowl. If you know, you know. If you know, you know. But apparently, the mystery of the sugar bowl is solvable. Says Daniel Handler. Yeah, he says he gets, like, a letter a year from one reader who's figured it out. So you can figure it out 
And I, and maybe my trusty co-host here, is going to help me find it. Yeah, guys, um... I just, I just really love these books, guys. Like, it was these books that made me want to read more. Mm-hmm. It was these books that made me want to write more. Vocabulary builders for both of us. It was a huge vocabulary builder. And because the, the thing, the thing about these books is not only are they just full of the intrigue and the mystery and the secrets and the, you know, the learning about how you really are on your own. Yeah. And that hardly any adult in this world knows more than you do. Mm-hmm. And we're really all just terrified. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh yeah. But it also, it also is a great educational tool. Mm-hmm. You learn a lot from these books. I just wish I could experience something like this again. Yeah. With that, with that, with the, with the, with the eyes of a child, the way I experienced this series for the first time, the wonder of it all, incongruent with our narrative today. Why don't you read us Lemony Snicket's letter to the editor from the end of the wide window? From the end of book three, right? Yeah, because we don't get any other movies after that. <laughs> and I love the Miserable Mill. I, I lo- do too. I love book four. To my kind editor. I am writing to you from the Paltryville Town Hall, where I am, where I have convinced the mayor to allow me inside the eye-shaped office of Dr. Orwell in order to further investigate what happened to the Baudelaire orphans while they were living in the area. Next Friday, a black jeep will be in the northwest corner of the parking lot of the Orion Observatory. Break into it. In the glove compartment, you should find a description of this frightening chapter in the Baudelaire's lives entitled The Miserable Mill, as well as some information on hypnosis, a surgical mask, and 68 sticks of gum. (laughs) I have also included a blueprint of the pincher machine. Yeah! Which I believe Mr. Hellquist will find useful for his illustrations. Remember, you are my last hope that the tales of the Baudelaire orphans can finally be told to the general public with all due respect, Lemony Snicket. I love that the implication of those letters is that... He always gives you elements of the next installment. Well, yeah, he always gives you elements of the next installment, but the implication is also... That he can't do this. He can't do this in the open with an agent normally. You he know? can't. He can't because Lemony Snicket, as a meta character, is on the run from the law, and therefore cannot send things through the mail to his editor. Mm-hmm. They have to do a dead drop, like he's a fucking drug dealer. Yeah. Like go to this location at this time, and you'll find the manuscript for the next book. I it's l- so wild. You know what else I love about these? What? I love that my blood is on these books. Oh, because of there the are, super thick piperus? Because of the way, yeah, the pages are cut. They're super sharp on some of them. And I there are blood stains on some of these pages <laughs> from where I've read them. I, I just love that. Anyway, guys, thanks for sitting here for three hours and listening to us half talk about the movie and wish it was the book. <laughs> but it was a Nickelodeon movie, so I thought it fit. Yeah, no. <laughs> guys, Nick- Nickelodeon did us dirty. Na- yeah, they... I will. Ad- uh, are you ready? Put your party hat on, Carrie. Okay. I'm admitting it. It was bad. <laughs> that movie is bad, but effective. Carrie, I just think that, I just think that visually, it's so much better than the series. Okay. Uh, and you're right. Visuals is not all that counts. <laughs> and I should think about that more before I say things are superior. <laughs> I hate you. I know. I'm leaving. <laughs> Goodbye. Have it. I'm done. I'm sick of it. <laughs>
Guys, you are going to be enthralled with next week's selection. It's going to, oh, Carrie. Mm -hmm. I'm so fucking excited, guys. I have one question for you. Who lives in a pineapple under the sea? SpongeBob SquarePants! Oh my god! Next week, guys. It's the same year. Yeah. It's the same year as this. Guys, next week we will be talking about the 2004 Nickelodeon film classic, the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Who's a goofy goober? I am. <laughs> We're all goofy goobers, yeah. And guys, we've talked about SpongeBob before. Mm -hmm. Go on over to the Patreon. Yeah. We did SpongeBob Christmas and. <laughs> Yeah, we just did the Christmas special on the Patreon, Can but... Can you believe that's almost a year ago? I know. <laughs> Wait, Carrie, no, it's not. Yeah. yeah it, it can't be almost a year ago. It is almost a year ago. Jesus Christ. I know. Uh, be on the lookout for that next week, folks. In the meantime, you can go follow us on Twitter at KickNStream. K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. You can write the show at KickingAndStreamingPodcast at gmail.com. That's with an and, not an ampersand. And don't forget, folks, please be practicing the three R's. Rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, retweet, folks. We want everyone to come and join Nick November at yeah. Kicking and Streaming. If you guys haven't checked out the Patreon, yet go check it out more quality content coming to you from kicking and streaming until then i'm carrie i'm ross and as always sorry, sorry mom, mom.